Hello, good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 12th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. The Congressional Select Committee to investigate January 6th will hold their next hearing, focusing today on extremists at the Capitol. Some excellent visual investigations by the New York Times provides details about the organization and execution of the insurrection. I recommend it because it's a huge See something, say something kind of domestic terrorism. I literally had a shower after I watched most of it before I retired. It was, it was very toxic to watch, but it's important. So returning to the show, my guest for the full hour is UCI Emeritus Professor Jack Miles with us to talk about his new book that he co-wrote with his old friend Mark Taylor, the noted cultural critic and philosopher. In the book we're going to talk about is A Friendship in Twilight, Lockdown Conversations on Death and Life. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the whole hour is Jack Miles, Emeritus Professor of English at UCI, as well Senior Fellow for Religious Affairs with the Pacific Council on International Policy. I'm not sure if he's still doing that. You may have seen his work in the Atlantic, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, heard him on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, or seen him recently in some forums on religion. Jack has been affiliated in major capacities at Caltech, the Claremont Graduate University, J. Paul Getty Trust, and the Committee on Conceptual Foundations of Science at the University of Chicago. He has written award-winning books, God, a Biography, and Christ, a Crisis in the Life of God. Jack's the general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Religions. That's when we last had him on here in 2015. Time is really flying. He studied as a Jesuit seminarian at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome and the Hebrew University in Jerusalem before completing his PhD at Harvard in Near Eastern Languages and Literature. This is where that friendship, the partnership, budded the topic of the book we're going to talk about today. In the tradition of rigorous Jesuit training, Jack Miles is fluent in several modern languages, and you can see that in his book. He's pushed me really hard in my own mother tongue in English with the words that are expressed in the the book. He comes to us today from Catherine's Grove, his orchard home in Santa Ana. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Jack Miles. Well, Good to be with you, Claudia. Thank you for that uh, very generous introduction. Well, thank you for everything. Okay, well, that takes care of everything. So congratulations on publishing your latest book, A Friendship in Twilight, Lockdown Conversations on Death and Life. And congratulations, Jeff, for making it to July 12, 2022, one of many stops along the marathon of a well-lived abundantly productive life, here debating, though, the lessons that a catastrophic present can teach about the future and how to read, think, live, and face up to death. Congratulations, Jack. Oh, thank you. So your co-author, Mark Taylor, and you've been friends, as I mentioned, since the 50 years ago meeting at Harvard, 
grappling with the headiest of questions. Mark is an atheist and you a Christian, a former Jesuit. Both of you begin to stare down a very turbulent year, you in Orange County and Mark over in Williamstown. That's way in the Berkshires, Massachusetts. And before we talk about your project, Let's begin to let's speak about the pandemic genre. You two raise the question in the book about why neither philosophers nor writers took up the flu of 1918. And our go to epidemiologist, Andrew Neumer, uh, and I went to him about this, and he mentioned that in the work that medical historian Alfred Crosby and Andrew struggled to put the word on it, but it's it really comes down to some exhaustion, Americans and writers and thinkers were trying to, um, you know, overcome after World War One, And so then there he did. Andrew mentioned that there is a book called Pale Horse, Pale Rider by Catherine Ann Porter, published in, in that some short stories in 1939. I don't know if you had come across that at some point, Jack. I know the book Pale Horse, uh, Pale Rider it, it is something that, that we could have brought up uh um, in in the book, um, if it had occurred to us, we talked about uh, Camus, the the plague, and um, a more recent book uh, by William H. McNeil, a, a historian of plagues and peoples. But what comes to mind for the question you raise about the strange uh, absence of major memorials for the 1918 uh, flu epidemic? It, is a book I sponsored years ago at the University of California Press called Risk and Danger. It was by the anthropologist Mary Douglas and the sociologist, the late sociologist Aaron Wildowski. Uh, they pointed out that when there is a human enemy who can be uh, identified, it's much easier to rally uh, opposition to fight that human enemy than when there is a natural uh, risk. So th they used as an example the risk of meltdown at a nuclear power plant, such as Point Diablo. There was a enormous uh, opposition to the building of, of that plant, and there were human enemies who could be, human opponents who could be identified. But statistically, the much greater risk in California is, is earthquake. And you just did not have the same kind of a powerful mobilization to defend against uh, earthquake that you did against that uh, that power plant. So in World War One, there were human enemies, there were human heroes. It was easier to dramatize it than with the plague, and I, I think the same is is probably true today. I mean, we have lost a million people, plus yeah, to uh COVID, but I I don't expect to see a major a memorial. I, I wonder whether anyone is writing a musical composition about it. Of course, we're still in the middle of it, too, you know, uh, and maybe there won't be a, a victory over it, a final victory over it, and so there won't be the opportunity to have a great victory parade. And that, that may have something to do with, with, this, with the, uh, the way that we find ourselves at a loss for words. Well, the short memories of Americans that we have the amnesia of history and the mythologizing in the small parts about the pandemic in 1918. I mean, all those contribute to the, why we wouldn't have a really firm 
sort of foundation to approach what was opening up in 2020. So it's a, a, it confounded us going in and we're going to confound ourselves going through. I don't know about the out part if it's endemic. So let's talk about this process in which you're, you're transitioning. You have all this that you've got this rich work that both of you have done in religion and philosophy and literature, I mean, all over the humanities and history map there, that you are, I'm, I'm curious when I'm reading this book, I'm wondering when, and I think I saw the point where you mentioned editing, but when did you consciously start thinking, I'm not just writing a Mark, I'm writing a book with Mark. What, when did that start to happen? Either what month or um, what, what period of the pandemic? Well, you, have, you raise a very interesting question. I, at the outset, did not want to think that our correspondence was for publication. Uh, I didn't want to be looking over my shoulder uh, thinking at, about some imaginary public. I just wanted to be writing freely to my old friend. Mark, on the other hand, uh, though he op- he began perhaps in about the same way, I would say by a month or two into it, he was telling me, Jack, I think this is pretty good. I, th- I think uh, this is publishable. And I was skeptical, but uh, we had enormous momentum. Uh, we really were, were writing longer and longer and more ambitious letters, you might say. Yes. When we came to the end... Uh, oh, that, that's another question. Were we ever going to end? At the beginning, we didn't have an end point in sight. We called it Plague Diary, but we had no idea when this plague uh, would finish. At a certain point, about, I'll say, perhaps May uh, or June, but we can't keep this up forever. Let's stop at the election. So we agreed to stop at, at the election, but then, of course, the election wasn't over on Election Day. It wasn't over even after all the court uh, efforts of the Trump administration uh, to overturn the election had failed. It wasn't uh, over when the final count uh, uh, took place, the semifinal, you know, uh, on December 20th, I think. And uh, so finally, our last letters were on uh, January 6th and, and, and 7th. By that time, uh, we had written 475,000 words, which would be four or five uh, books worth. <laughs> and Mark, uh, initially, he thought very ambitiously that it might be like Knausgaard and we would publish multiple volumes. I thought that was really insane, and, and my agent uh, very strongly agreed. So he did the heroic work of making a selection, you know, of a, about between a qu- one quarter and one third, probably closer to one third, and, uh, and offering it to me and saying, you know, you, you can second guess anything or give me your selection. And I accepted his selection with just some, uh, some adjustments uh, around the edge. But then there was still, uh, you know, real work uh, to be done, we found a publisher with surprising ease. Columbia University Press was enthusiastic about it from the beginning, but their editorial board wanted an introduction, so we had to do that. And then That's uh, their a marketing department wanted us to add a, a, something more personal at the beginning, a note to the readers. And I thought that just giving the full flow of of conversation was 
was a little too much. We had to divide it, you know, arbitrarily into something like chapters, give people at least a little hint of what was in each chapter, sort of shape it up in that way to make it make it possible for people to enter it at any variety of points. And and the introduction, I was curious about the the voice is very different from the whole rest of it. It's it's not clear who the author was, but those, that was written by you too, Mark and you, Jack. Yes, uh, you know it, it 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 would ideally have been written in the it is written in the third person as if by somebody else. You're right. It's very but the the voice the the tone is really different. So it, that, that's kudos, right. We, kudos we for that. Write, we tried to write as as if we were. A third person uh, just speaking pretty factually about the two of us, just recounting who we are so that so that the readers had some sense of who they were listening to. So it's not, you know, the letters are very personal, man to man, and the introduction is uh, done in, you might know, say, in a journalistic uh, tone. Right. Oh, yeah. It, it's a, it, the tone, is, it really, really works. It, it puzzled me. I thought, I don't know who's, who was involved in this. And <laughs> so it's a, it's a, and it's a really great story. So talk about then, Jack, how have you mapped your book? You talked a little bit about that, but uh, you could break it down more. You break it down into different kinds of holidays, American-type holidays, throughout the year, and every time... Mark opens, and I'm not sure Mark you often gets the last word. Sometimes I have to go back and figure out. Sometimes we know whose voice it is. Sometimes we have to double check and read back and say, whose voice is this? But talk about how you, you decided to do that. And is it, are you mimicking, I guess I, I think that's the word I want, the, a kind of a theological text by how you lead into it with a kind of a, a word thought cloud opening each one of those holidays? Well, uh, he begins because he's there three hours ahead of me in Massachusetts, and not only that, he has the habit of rising at five o'clock in the morning. So, and and his he would do this letter first thing in the morning. So, whenever I got round in my day, which is very differently organized, uh, to uh, writing my letter, I would have his always uh, before me. So that's why he usually uh, begins. And I often uh, do end one of the sections, uh, but uh, as we shaped things into these semi-chapters, uh, it would occasionally happen that, that he had uh, had the last word. And our letters uh, on January 6th mm. were, were essentially written uh, simultaneously, and his uh, letter is last because I thought it had the... I thought it had the most eloquent ending, so we put it in last place. <laughs> yes, yes. And as for that, you make a very interesting uh, comparison. I hadn't thought of, of the what you call the thought cloud. Uh, uh, for our listeners, I would say these are like bullet points, just just giving a quick list of the topics that come up in the in a, a given section of the correspondence. But um, in a way, it is a bit like a preacher giving you the text of the day and then and then uh, explicating it. I hadn't thought of that uh, that analogy, but I guess it carries to a certain point. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest for the full hour is Emeritus Professor of English at UCI, Jack Miles. He's the co-writer with Mark Taylor. 
his academic's long friend. He's uh, Mark Taylor's a noted cultural critic and philosopher. The book we're making, the, the centerpiece of this conversation, is A Friendship in Twilight, Lockdown Conversations on Death and Life, published by Columbia University Press. So I want to know all earnestly how, Jack, might this endeavor, like in the moment when you're putting down the journals to each other and the curating, how did this endeavor help, if at all, your ability to survive the stay in place, uncertainty, memory, fear, dread, and I might add longing? I think it helped us a lot. Um, you know, we've all seen pictures of an apartment building in flames or an earthquake or scenes from war. Um, and what what you always uh, find in, in the photographs taken at such scenes is people who don't ordinarily hug each other, falling into each other's arms. They embrace. It's, it's a spontaneous need for an embrace that can can allow each to draw strength from the other. So this was, uh, in its way, my very old friend and me embracing each other from the distance of the two coasts and drawing strength uh, from each other through exchanging whatever was on our minds as, as this pandemic uh, fell upon us. And remember that in March, if this was a life-threatening disease, especially for older people, we were both older, especially for people with compromising conditions. He is a very severe diabetic. I have a heart condition and a COPD lung uh, condition. We really did think that uh, that this could uh, take our lives. As time passed uh, and the me- the compensatory measures, social distancing, masking, took hold, uh, we began to feel a little safer. And uh, now we're all used to having the vaccine, but as you were commenting, memories are short. Well, we didn't have the vaccine. For months we didn't have the vaccine. And I recall being very strongly hit by a piece that Dave Eggers did, an op-ed piece, very written with acid, I might say, a very angry piece, uh, I think angry especially at at how uh, the Trump administration was handling the pandemic. But he said it can take five years to develop a, a new vaccine, and sometimes no vaccine comes ever. There is no vaccine yet for HIV. So it was a frightening time, and yes, it did help us, I think, to um, have someone to talk to. Mind you, you know, we, we both are financially secure, live in, I think, beautiful places. We are both married and very happily so, and so we had our wives to talk to, talk to and, and they come up in the correspondence uh, sometimes uh, as well. But still, to be able to talk at length with an old friend at a time of danger is a great consolation. And to your point, well, there's a lot of points in there, but the, to your point about how that uh, we have to remind ourselves when we read this that this was happening in real time early starting 2020. And as you both 
anticipate what will happen. It plays tricks with our memory where, where you're looking ahead very astutely about what's going to happen with the pandemic, with the election process. So it's uh, it, it, you think like, oh, he missed that. But no, you're you're ahead of it in some ways. It's very interesting. So you break down this phenomenon of what a Bildungsroman is. And I want to know how Friendship in Twilight relates to this form of literature and why it was so important for you to explain to your readers what a Bildungsroman is. All right. Well, Bildung, the, the German word Bildung, uh, it can mean formation. It can mean cultivation in the sense of high culture. It can also even have overtones of maturation, you know, uh, the completion of an unformed mind and bend a character uh, to uh, something nearer to completion. And uh, Roman is the uh, German word for novel. So the rough equivalent is a coming-of-age novel, but the, the German word tends to uh, stress more uh, the relationship of the subject of the novel the hero, if you will, to society and uh, his learning about the social world uh, that uh, that he lives in, whether he can change it, must change it, or must adjust to it, or uh, or something um, in between. Now, a novel doesn't usually take the form of letters, but one. Uh, one famous, very influential in its day German novel did do that. That was the novel The Sorrows of Young Werther, Die Leiden des Jungen Werthers. Uh, it was about a, an unhappy young lover who finally uh, takes his own life. He's, he's in love with an older woman. This is also uh, a common trope, it seems, in, in stories of this sort. The young man finds an older woman who instructs him, but to whom he is also romantically uh, attached. So our novel, of course, given the fact that that we are as old as we are, cannot really be in any way a Bildungsroman. It's rather that uh, you get a kind of capsule life story for each of us in that introduction you were talking about, written in a very different voice. And it is it is uh, like reading a sequel, you know. So they met when they were raw twenty-year-olds, and now here they are in their seventies. And what are they talking about? And what have they learned? And and uh, how do they relate uh, to the physical and social world that uh, they find themselves in? And as you were uh, on the verge of pointing out the beginning, we spend all our time talking about the pandemic, but uh, at the end, we're spending all our time talking about the threat to American democracy. And I, I think you've, it's a big contribution that you're giving us a thought about a, a, a different way to think about that arc. That arc could be at any time along a life lived, and and you know the details and bu- building that. I I I think you. Uh, it's a challenge that I think is very interesting. And your mentioning about what could happen in that arc is the change that they could be in their society. I'm going to move up. What I was going to say for later is that 
I am was waiting. I was waiting for some kind of activist urge to come upon both of you as you're detailing the political development. So I'm going to hop on your mentioning that and move it up sooner here. And I know that you are very judicious, careful, theological interpreters, philosophic interpreters. And I thought as much dread as you were seeing unfolding in both the public health and then the political realms, I just was waiting to see when did you two feel the urge to act? And I noticed you were, there was one part you're talking about your daughter is canvassing or she was uh, phone banking and and you were you took a call from someone who wanted to know what your stage of voting was and that they asked if you would be willing to phone bank and you said you you'd think about that but so i i found there was a tension about critiquing and acting and i don't know whether there was a part of that that didn't make the director's cut but you can give us an opportunity jack to understand what you did with yourselves with that opportunity at your feet well i, I would say uh, as for our political action it was uh, quite quite a bit of financial contributions uh, i you know i don't have that much money uh, to give but i've scattered it around uh, i would say uh, uh, rather more widely in in over the last uh, two years than ever uh, before uh, in my life and um, uh, prompted perhaps by my daughter, but I might, I might even say just at the moment, I have, a, I have a little something written on my notepad to send a contribution to Reverend Warnock, you know, the, the Democratic, the black clergyman who became Georgia's first uh, black uh, a senator in, in history in the same year in which Georgia elected John Ossoff, uh, the first Jewish senator uh, in its history, uh, two wonderfully hopeful signs uh, in the very election that in so many other ways uh, would fill us with, uh, with dread. So partly at my daughter's urging, I wrote, uh, and my wife helped me, I can't, I can't tell you how many postcards, uh, handwritten postcards, uh, we wrote and sent uh, to prospective Democratic uh, voters in Georgia. And I also uh, did uh, try to do some phone banking, but I think I was, I was coming along at a time when there were already maybe a few too many hands on deck, and so the whole process of doing the phone banking went a little bit crazy, and I, I wasn't able to, to do that, but I did do uh, the postcards. Uh, I don't know um, what uh, what Mark uh, did uh, along those lines. I think I, um, as between the two of us, I think I have over the years done more marching. You know, I, I recall marching against the war uh, in Iraq and joining in the chant, No Blood for Oil. 2003, right? Yes. Or before. And uh, actually, we I do... We do, uh, in one of my letters, I do bring up the fact, uh, it's not a happy fact, that there were massive public demonstrations against that war, a gigantic one, something like 500,000 people in New York. 
And there were also gigantic demonstrations in Madrid, in Berlin. The whole world seemed to think this was a terrible idea, and it was. And yet, all those demonstrations had no effect. The Bush administration was able to go forward anyway, and uh, the, the cascade of negative consequences uh, since that time has uh, has been only only too apparent. So that can make you pretty discouraged, you know, about uh, at least that avenue, that the public uh, demonstration. Merely gathering together and making a lot of noise doesn't do it. You've got to be a, a more clever and more focused on just where the pressure points are in the in the system that you're attempting to uh, turn to uh, the right course of action. Well, I I bring that up, Jack, because I'm at 68, a very desperate woman, and I I have to find every moment to lead by example. And so, were that to be very clearly mapped in that in that conversation, I think that would have been an opportunity for you you to lead by example because the stakes really. They're high and they're getting higher. So that's my that's my little uh, modest reader take about that. But I I want to also bring up I'm, my listeners have heard me bring up Calvinism, and I've had a clergyman say, "Well, that's not quite right the way you have it." But I Mark raises some questions about Calvinism, and I wanted for you to take a moment to talk about how Calvinism has really framed the way we think politically and culturally in America and how that's how we're seeing that playing out with pandemics and our politics. Well, um, here's a, maybe I can quote something here. Please. Uh, so, um, I was a little taken aback. I said to myself, when, uh, when you mentioned Calvinism in a quick note to me, I said, Calvinism, I... But um, it does come up uh, around in the correspondence we were having around Labor Day, uh, and and Mark um, Mark takes the the view that when when Luther and Calvin dignified as religiously significant the actions of lay people, whatever their walk of life as dignified them as religiously important, just as religiously important as the work of any clergyman or any monk uh, or any any cloistered nun, he set in motion a transformation of sanctity, you might say, that redistributed it away from formal religion and into uh, other uh, lines of work, I'll call them. And uh, he he cites Max Weber, the mm-hmm. very influential uh, German sociologist, who uh, said that what Calvinism had, had done um, in Europe, and also very much in America, was endow work, and particularly gainful work, money-making uh, work, with a religious importance. So you would begin to seem holy, you would begin to seem one of the elect, one of the blessed, if you were doing very well uh, financially. Uh, Now, this would not entail your being showy 
flaunting your work. Rather, uh, the true Calvinist spirit would be to live simply and accumulate wealth, invest it, and grow in that way even richer. And uh, in a funny way, you know, there is a Catholic form of this kind of Protestant accumulation. The monks, way back in the Dark Ages, lived very, very simply, but their farms, their breweries, their wineries, their flocks, and so forth, were definitely producing wealth, but they had a surplus that they could invest, and so they became richer, and they could form other monasteries, and in this way, a kind of monastic financial empire arose. Well, Mark Taylor's view is that the modern secular capitalist is like a monk in that way. He's producing wealth, and he's spreading the idea that to to be prosperous is uh, is to be uh, on God's side. I'm quoting here. He says, uh, "This is the basis of Luther's doctrine of vocation, which informs Calvin's argument about the importance of Protestantism for capitalism." In ways it took me a while to understand my conviction that religion is most influential where it was least obvious is a Protestant insight. So that that's that's Mark. Now I don't I don't quite I don't quite follow the argument. I mean I'd follow the argument. I don't quite accept it. Uh, to me it's like uh, saying, "Oh, well, art is is uh, most beautiful where it's least visible." Um, I don't need painting, I don't need literature, I don't need classical music, because my life is a work of art. Well, you know, uh, you can take that view uh, if you want. It, it, has, a, it has a certain logic uh, to it. It, it. it explains certain behaviors, it certainly does. Uh, but um, what he ended up doing, I think, is is taking that idea and having it be the only religious idea that that he finds interesting. <laughs> So his Christianity, since it's without Jesus and without God, uh, really leaves him uh, an atheist who's, however, very, very illuminating in the ways that he talks about religion. Well, my concern is that the legacy has sort of influenced our sort of economic arc, Our that I, I look at it in present value of classic economics. I thank the Calvinists for that. Is if you don't exploit it now, you blew it. You know, you've got to channel it now in the here now. We're all damned for all time. So you you've got your moment right now. Do everything. And I'm thinking that isn't setting aside anything for uh, future generations. So I, that's that's where another part of that that Calvinism that I find is a particularly uh, pernicious persistent and um so and so it's like a different took a an off ramp from that freeway there that you're mentioning in terms of religion so so when i was checking out a few other ideas exploring in terms of christianity the trend here what happened in the us that christianity that it doesn't resemble any more the the christian sorts of underpinnings of of the origin in uh, in Rome and where we are it looks so cruel it looks so tribal how did we get here jack 
well, if, if you're asking uh, for uh, an explanation of the arc of Christian history from Jesus uh, to the present, I, I will say at least it goes beyond the scope of, of um, Marx and my little book of, of correspondence. But I, you do talk did, about the cruelty uh, of... Uh, yes. In a very general way. Yes. At the beginning, what Christianity offered the world was a way to be in covenant with the one and only God. They took monotheism uh, from Judaism, but said that the covenant that was now available did not require you to be born a Jew. You could be born in any tribe, if you will. And uh, in this, uh, this new community, this new covenant, all those tribal uh, divisions, and even the divisions between master and slave, even the division between male and female, uh, were, now, were now trivial. They were inconsequential. And that was a very uh, mm. a powerful and a, appealing uh, idea. You might say it sold itself. Once it was coupled with the promise that Jesus uh, had accepted punishment for all sins that anyone had ever committed, and so no one needed any longer to exact revenge uh, on his enemy. He could regard his enemy as his friend and trust uh, to the justice of God. So here we had now universalism. We also had uh, pacifism. And we had the promise of of victory over death. Of what consequence is it to win a war if uh, if all of the warriors are going to die anyway and lose everything? So this this was uh, extremely appealing at the start, but uh, the the uh, power of religion is such that ambitious worldly rulers rarely want that power. Uh, to operate independent of themselves. So uh, first, the Christian religion, which was illegal in Rome and even intermittently, uh, quite viciously persecuted, uh, was legalized. And then the fateful further step uh, was taken. that It was nationalized, or if you will, imperialized. It became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and other religions were now persecuted in its name, and even deviant forms of Christianity were now persecuted in the name of the official imperial version of, uh, of Christianity. And so from that point on, you had a whole series of fusions of national uh, identities uh, with the Christian uh, religion, and that is, uh, at this point, uh, what is threatening us from the right uh, in in the United States, uh, a Christian uh, nationalism, a desire uh, somehow uh, to say that if, if uh, Christianity is not to be the national uh, religion of the United States, then somehow should enjoy, enjoy special protection or should be first among equals. Uh, and the neutrality in religion that is written into the Constitution uh, is in danger of being 
reinterpreted in favor of a, a kind of backdoor favoritism. That's where we are today. That 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 was a a tall order to bring it two thousand plus years in a in a two paragraphs. That was a much much appreciated. Thanks for letting me ask you that unwieldy round there. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest for the full hour is Jack Miles, emeritus professor of English at UCI. He's co-writer with his profession long friend Mark Taylor. He's uh, Mark Taylor, the noted cultural critic and philosopher. The book they wrote together is A Friendship in Twilight, Lockdown Conversations on Death and Life, published by Columbia University Press. Jack, this is a moment where maybe you will just read us a piece. Well, you know, uh, our our, uh, conversation, our correspondence, I mean, included the most everyday kinds of subject, you know, uh, food became quite an issue. You know, things became scarce, uh, and and one of the things that became scarce was meat. So I had the the uh, clever idea of um, since since other kinds of meat were available, I knew that honey baked ham had had a whole warehouse full of ham. So I I bought a ham, and then I suggested to Mark that uh, if he was having trouble finding meat in the market, he could he could buy a ham as well. So we exchanged letters around Easter. So I'm going to begin uh, an excerpt Please. with the postscript from his Easter letter. He ends, Happy Easter, Mark. P.S. By the way, Miles, thanks to your brilliant plan of getting a humongous ham to last through the plague, I'm going to be eating Easter ham until Christmas. And I say, Dear Mark, Easter Sunday. It keeps, Ham does. It's cured, but I alert you, it does begin to dry out after a while. Still, I made blueberry pancakes this morning for our Easter breakfast, and with just 10 seconds in the skillet, a couple slices that were beginning to look a little dry came out delicious. Okay, that's the, uh, you might say, (laughs) the humble everyday. The pedestrian, yes. So, then we... Swinging back toward you know, how you are coping uh, with the threat of death and whether the threat of death carries your mind beyond human life into a life after death or, or some, some kind of meaning of that uh, can encompass even the loss of everything. I uh, am reminded of a story which I share with Mark. So I'm quoting now. I may have told you this story once before. If so, I apologize. But years ago at Loyola, this is Loyola University of Chicago where I taught for a few years, I was speaking in a class on religion and literature about death as classically that which has ever led the greatest minds as they contemplated it to the reflections that we now call religious. In this class, there was one boy who always sat at the back, just never, ever spoke, but showed me in his written work that he was clearly the most thoughtful member of the class. After class, on the day I am remembering, he came to me and said that death was not the only way to be led to the liminal moment I had spoken of. This boy had terrible acne, terrible oozing acne, His face was really painful to look at. 
And because of it, he confessed, he had never dated, could never imagine any girl wanting to date someone as ugly as him. But this had now changed. He was in love with her, and she with him, and the beauty and glory of the experience so overwhelmed him as it began that he had to go to the chapel and just sit there for a while. Others have been comparably overwhelmed and never thought to sit in the chapel, but our focus just now is on the enormous unsought given, not on how one copes with or what one makes of it. A moment of coronavirus horror reached me today as I read a story about what the virus did to the lungs of an otherwise healthy 59-year-old man, and then I give him the link to the New York Times story that, that described this. Wow, it was very scary. I go on, this is much, much worse than the flu, and you don't need to be old and vulnerable for it to take you down in agony and isolation. I don't think it matters terribly, whether we call the recoil, the experience of fear and wonder and one's own smallness contemplating mass death, religious or trans-religious, or pre-religious, or something else. What strikes me is that there have been many moments in history, even fairly recent history before this moment, that have merited this reaction, received it, and then provoked philosophical reflection upon it. Remember Levinas, no poetry after Auschwitz? And for anyone worried about the perils of nuclear power run amok, Chernobyl and Fukushima are objectively more lethal by far than any demolished trio of skyscrapers. As much can be said alone of the many plagues that have come before this one and their cultural impacts. C.F. William Hardy McNeil, Plagues and Peoples, a work I mentioned a moment ago. Mm -hmm. Always there are profiteers. Always there are saints. Each sets an example each example lasts, and this is just the beginning. So, I don't know quite where to go on. I mean, I, I say a little bit later. So, the opportunity to take this point is always at hand and yet always avoidable. It's like Camus saying that one is never without a reason to commit suicide. I don't wish it, but if Florida descends into a maelstrom worse than New York's, I don't expect Governor Ron DeSantis to waver in his devotion to Trump and his conviction that he was right to proceed as he has proceeded. He won't be humbled or express wonderment at how he had missed it for so long. He could have got it with much less impact than the coronavirus, and he may still miss it even in the wake of the coronavirus at its worst. How I wish it were otherwise, and I imagine ordinary Floridians, too, not necessarily condemning him, but just saying with that universal poor man's stoicism, hey, what are you going to do? It happens. Nope. The equivalent. Okay. That was a quote, so I can keep that in there, folks. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. See, I never I never see that coming. Um, so, well, thank you for those. There are so many choice ones I would set aside in case you weren't ready with your own, and so I, I appreciate that gives us a huge range of your thinking and your contributions. And and I now I'm going to push you a little bit on, I'm listening to what you two are processing. I'm reading and listening, both of them. We can do that. We can listen to books, can't we, Jack? 
Yes. Oh, yes. Reading aloud is wonderful too. Well, that yeah. Well, sometimes I really do. I did that with some of the, the citations, the the poems that are in the book, as well as poems that are sent to me as recently as this last week. That, but a lot has happened in the last six years, and I have, I can tell, how much I've learned that how much this has happened in my own head, my own thinking the last six years. And I'm just gauging, I'm, as I read every single page in this book, I'm looking at what, what kinds of tributaries were coming back in. I can see them going out, that Mark and you are talking to your students. Mark talks a great deal about talking to students, and he's talking to you, he's talking to the readers. And I'm just... I'm just trying to find out. I didn't see those new sources coming in with the non-white philosophers and analysts. That I I didn't see them there. And I know Mark was dreading, it does dread, that people will cease to read white philosophers and maybe have already ceased to read them. But I think there's room for all kinds of thinkers. And in the last six years, there's been so much of reconsideration, so much intellectual honesty. There's room for all of them. And I don't know what assumptions you, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to assess yourself what you think the, if, if you could get, if there could have been more room to other thinkers in both of yours analysis. Well, I'm, I'm sure that's uh, that's true in uh, in a priori almost. Um, any any two people are are going to be limited by by what their their uh, uh, past history is, and also what their past history of reading uh, and and learning is. So we are who we are. You know, two uh, elderly white gentlemen. You might expect us uh, to have the limitations that uh, go with our identities. I will say this: uh, not that we found a particular um, black, indigenous, uh, or Hispanic uh, thinker that fell in that fell our in our path and uh, you know required us to rethink things in the way that you are proposing. But we did spend quite a bit of time talking about Black Lives Matter, and the I, I recall uh, being very struck by the optimism that John Lewis uh, felt toward the end of his life. That uh, though the moment seems to have passed now, uh, so very many people uh, who beforehand had ignored the f- the phenomenon of police violence against black people now seemed to be taking it seriously he he thought this this was a an important um way of making good trouble uh, to use his phrase yes so this this that subject comes up um, but you're right i i don't think there is a a, a particular uh, um, thinker who ethnically or by gender or sexual orientation or something is very different from Mark and me, whom we uh, would have turned to. 
So, yeah, we could do more than we did. Well, um, I mean, I've learned that in that John Lewis moment you describe in the book, where he reconciles with an oppressor, I think it was at the at the bridge, and he, and I learned from various Zoom sessions that there were some that talked about how very fraught that was. There's a there's a, a sort of the thinking of the colonialization. Great writers, storytellers in our time have been talking about the doctrine of discovery and the, that we are still a colony. I mean, there's there's all those kinds of things that don't quite make it onto the 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 topic. So I I just wanted to uh, I wanted to push you a little bit about that because I wouldn't give these six years away for anything. There's essential of my education than the rest of my years of education, and so that's. That's where I thought, you know, if I've learned this much, I want to, you know, I'm going to make sure I bring everybody along with me. So that's so I we talked about the the takeaways of what you have done and, you know, found some activist kinds of itches to scratch. And I thank you for doing that. And we're going to give you a this is a you provided this moment of, of being an example. So I don't know if there is anything you'd like to add uh, there's there's a lot more in this book we haven't even touched folks but um i don't know if you had a sort of a a concluding comment because i need to say thank you very much in a short way well let me uh draw in an image that i i use at the uh, or we use at the very beginning this is not a book that's going to solve your problem whatever it might be how to avoid probate or no. or uh, how to lose weight or any practical problem of that sort it's it's rather like an invitation uh, to a dinner party. You don't know who's going to be at the dinner party. The host tells you, uh, these are interesting people. I have a feeling you're going to get along with them, and, and you might have a good time. Uh, so it, it, if you uh, read the book, it's like accepting that kind of invitation. And if you finish the book, it'll be uh, when you, as if when you come home, you, you say, it was, it was great. It was really interesting, even though you can't exactly uh, provide a quick summary of of everything that was touched on because so very many things were. That's what a real life is like. That's what a real dinner yes. party is like, and that's yes. what this book is like. Thank you. I want to also quickly mention before we wrap here that listeners are invited to take in more on the Thursday of this week at 7.30 Mark's time. It'll be Jack's time. It'll be 4.30 uh, p.m., an online book event through Zoom with both of you talking about your book. Lori Patton of Middlebury College, present there, she'll be moderating. So here's where I thank you, Jack, so much for your time today on Ask a Leader. Thank you for, for the invitation, Claudia. It's been a wonderful dinner party. <laughs> Thank you. And it's what a privilege it is to speak with you after such a feat you two accomplished on so many levels. Stay safe. Be well, as warnings of BA5 are hearkening us back to the earliest parts of Mark and your plague journal. My guest was Jack Miles, co-writer with Mark Taylor, the noted cultural critic and philosopher of Friendship in Twilight, Lockdown Conversations on Death and Life, published by Columbia University Press, available at your favorite independent book dealer. Put your hand on your heart. Yes. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, I'm going to talk with Linda Kramer, OC reality climate activist who's followed local energy distribution models in pursuit of lowering everyone's carbon footprints. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Land where my fathers died. Land of the pilgrim's pride. 
Did you say pilgrims? From every mountainside, let freedom ring. Is freedom here? Or should we take a message?